It's getting kind of hard to believe things are going to get better. I've been drowning too long to believe that the tide's going to turn. And I've been living too hard to believe things are going to get easier now. I'm still trying to shake off the pain from the lessons I've learned. And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord I will slay him. Ha 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 ha! He'd take you from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. Ha 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 ha! Blood will run down his face when he is decapitated. Ah! His head on my mantle is how I will let this world go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more, back at the beginning, on a new phase of the journey, to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. Last week, I reviewed the ending of Carrie, uh, specifically, I focused on the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the ending, and I will continue to do so for the endings of each of his novels moving forward. I will also break it down by character themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I like the endings. So one thing that I forgot to mention in both my announcement episode and my carry episode was what what I'm, what am I going to actually review here. I'm not, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to review the short stories. Um, I don't even know if I'm going to do the novellas. I'm sorry, guys, but uh, I'm going to right now stick for the actual novels. Um, and then, you know, if, if I get through that, then maybe I'll do some cleanup um, and hit some of the, the, the bigger short stories and the novellas. But uh, if I skip past uh, Night Shift, and you're wondering why I'm not doing each uh, the Night Shift stories, it's just because I, I'm, I'm foregoing that in order to, to keep the endeavor for the moment entirely on the actual published novels. And then, then we'll see what happens afterwards, but, but that's that. Okay, so I'm going to just cut right to the chase today, guys. Welcome back to the Stephen King cast. Today we are looking at Stephen King's second novel, or specifically the ending to Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot. So before I begin, I'm going to read a listener email in response to last week's Carrie episode. And this is from Shane, who writes, Hi, Constant Reader. This is great. I'm excited for your new phase of the podcast. I was a devoted listener in the beginning of your podcast, but I confess that I have only dibbed and dabbed in the episodes since you finished the books in chronological order. I listened to your new Carrie Ending podcast, and I had a couple of quick thoughts, mainly concerning the morality of the ending. I was happy to hear you grappling with whether we should be sympathizing with Carrie. The first thing that came to mind was, yes, bullying is bad, but should it really be met with the death penalty? The character arc of of Steve and Stranger Things never happens if they had killed him with the fire in the school gym. Great point. I think that the complex way that the story handles Carrie and her monstrous overreaction only heightens the ending. She does something horrible, but she is still a confused girl. It's a great ending. Can't wait to soak up each episode, new episode uh, of this podcast, of this new phase. Congratulations on a great idea. Shane. Shane, thank you for writing in about Carrie, and thank you for the, the compliments. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I've been thinking about this for a while. 
Um, and I, I don't know if it's it's a little bit too niche, even within a niche podcast about Stephen King. But uh, I, I really look forward to, to hearing all of your thoughts on the endings of these books. Um, and while I'm on the subject of Carrie, on my Facebook page, I had Aran who uh, wrote a couple thoughts about the ending of Carrie. Um, and he wrote, well, it might be just a contrast with the De Palma film, but for me, the fact that Carrie makes the choice to go back into the gymnasium at the end makes all the difference in the world. I honestly can't remember if I specifically noticed that before you pointed it out. Regardless, I've never thought of the book the same way since making that connection. Um, so he's uh, referring to uh, the fact that I, in my review of the um, of Carrie, uh, Back in 2014, I mentioned that, that Carrie stops and she has a moment of clarity and she makes the choice to go back and engage in the carnage. And so from that point forward, it's, it's less of a tragedy and more of a horror story and it becomes that revenge story because she's not the victim at that point. She is, she is the monster. Um, and again, that just adds for these nuances and complexities to a novel that last week I determined was both objectively good as an ending because of the way in which it wraps up the plot. It deals with the character arcs. It has an X factor of just being thrilling, though it doesn't need to be. It has the X factor of having the most iconic scenes from the novel, from the story, within the conclusion. Um, and I also determined that I like it. All right, so right now Stephen King is, is at a 100% meter in terms of my personal enjoyment of his endings and from what I've been able to determine with as much objectivity as possible um, that it is a definitive good ending. And so we're going to take that same criteria and apply it today to Salem's Lot. So in order to have full context of the ending, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so that we're able to, to really shape the ending here. Ben Mears, a writer who spent part of his childhood in Jerusalem's Lot, Maine, has returned after 25 years. He quickly becomes friends with high school teacher Matt Burke and strikes up a passionate romantic relationship with Susan Norton, a young college graduate. Ben has returned to the town to write a book about the long-abandoned Marston House, where he had a bad experience as a child. Mears learns that the house, the former home of Depression-era hitman Hubert Hubie Marston, has been purchased by Kurt Barlow, an Austrian immigrant who has arrived in the lot ostensibly to open an antique store. Barlow is supposedly on an extended buying trip. Only his business partner, Richard Straker, is seen in public. The truth, however, is that Barlow is an ancient vampire, and Straker is his human familiar. The duo's arrival coincides with the disappearance of a young boy, Ralphie Glick, and the death of his brother Danny, who becomes the town's first vampire, turned by Barlow. Danny turns locals into vampires, including Mike Ryerson, Randy McDougall, Jack Griffin, and his own mother, Marjorie Glick. Danny fails, however, to turn his classmate, Mark Petrie, who resists him successfully by holding a plastic cross in Danny's face. Within several days, many of the townspeople are turned. To fight the spread of the new vampires, Ben and Susan are joined by Matt and his doctor, Jimmy Cody along with Mark and the local priest, Father Callahan. Susan is captured by Barlow, who turns her. She is eventually staked to the heart by Ben. When Father Callahan and Mark head over to Mark's parents' house to explain the danger that the family is in, the power is suddenly cut off and Barlow appears. After killing Mark's parents by smashing their heads together, Barlow briefly takes the boy hostage. Callahan pulls out his cross in an attempt to drive him off, and for a time it works until Barlow challenges him to throw the cross away. 
Callahan, not having faith enough to do so, is soon overwhelmed by Barlow, who takes the now useless cross and snaps it in two. Barlow then forces Callahan to drink his vampire blood, making him unclean. When Callahan tries to re-enter his church, he receives an electric shock, preventing him from going inside. Callahan then leaves Jerusalem's lot. Jimmy is killed when he falls from a rigged staircase and is impaled by knives set up by the vampires. Ben and Mark succeed in destroying the master vampire Barlow, but are lucky, lucky to escape with their lives and are forced to leave the town to the now leaderless vampires. The novel's prologue, which is set shortly after the end of the story proper, describes Ben and Mark's flight across the country to a seaside town in Mexico, where they attempt to recover from their ordeal. Mark is received into the Catholic Church by a friendly local priest and confesses for the first time what they have experienced. The epilogue has two returning to the town a year later, intending to renew the battle. Ben, knowing that there are too many hiding places for the vampires, deliberately starts a brush fire in the woods near the town with the intent of destroying it and the Marston House, Mar Marston, Marston House once and for all. Okay, and before I get into my thoughts, I'm turning it over to you guys. Um, and Bryant had written in about the ending of Salem's Lot. So like I just read uh, Shane's thoughts on the ending of Carrie, uh, just because I am uh, examining uh, Salem's Lot today doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily uh, drive the stake into the heart of Salem's Lot. If you have any thoughts from this point forward about Salem's Lot, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com with the subject heading Salem's Lot Ending. Similarly, next week we're going to be looking at The Shining, so please tell me your thoughts on the ending of The Shining, which is battened back in the conversation uh, since Dr. Sleep had come out. So again, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and in the subject heading write The Shining Ending. Or if you want to talk about any ending, do so. Just make sure in the title you say whatever the, the book title is, ending, and then I'll, I'll be able to know and be able to, to gather everyone's thoughts. So Bryant writes in, I don't have Salem's Lot burned in my brain quite as well as I do Carrie, but I do love that novel beginning to end. I think the reason its ending works, and in this particular case I'm referring to the epilogue more than anything else, is that it leaves readers with a sort of unsettled feeling. Ben and Mark have experienced true terror, and they are still alive, still fighting it, still winning their battles. But there's no sense that no matter how many battles they win, the war itself is unwinnable. There's that incredible moment when Ben returns the scene of Barlow's staking and picks up the teeth which Barlow's dispersal has left behind, and the disembodied teeth try to bite him. In that sort of world, what victory can one ever, uh, what victory can one ever hope to truly win? I think a big part of the reason why the words Salem's Lot still evoke such an ominous feeling all these years later is that King never quite resolved things there. The implication is that it turned eventually into a ghost town, and the fact that King never quite spelled it all the way out makes it a sort of ghost town within his own work, which is a fascinating way of looking at it. So when I looked at the ending of Salem's Lot, I looked at it within the context only of Salem's Lot. I didn't even think about One for the Road or all of the references to how abandoned it has become um, and how, as, um, as recently as the Institute, how it's still being mentioned um, as uh, the, a place of local, uh, local recent urban folklore um, within the world of, of Stephen King. I didn't even think of that. Um, so that actually is a, is a great... Um, component to place into are there other factors that we need to consider, um, which I'll get to in a little bit. But certainly what Stephen King has done after concluding Salem's Lot and built the mythology of Salem's Lot 
he continued to let it grow as he continued to grow his strength in creating uh, small towns, uh, which then in concentric circles, you know, he, he was able to then build bigger worlds within, uh, you know, the, a post-apocalyptic America with the stand and then a multiverse with the Dark Tower. Um, and at its heart, you know, he first experimented with all of this with Salem's Lot. Um, so I think that it's it's very, I think it's a nice tribute that he keeps it, well, not alive, because <laughs> it's not, he keeps it undead in his works um, by, by keeping it existing almost as just a, uh, as a memory and a thank you for how this town helped shape um, one of his his strengths, which is being able to create stories um, with multiple casts of characters. And here, these multiple casts of characters happen to exist within one particular town. Up next, we have Jeffrey, who writes, I was fine with it, ultimately. I thought it left the town open to be revisited in a future book, though not necessarily by the original characters. So again, um, we're, we're talking about the, um, the, the, the life um, or the unlife, the undeath of, of Salem's Lot. Then we have Michael who writes, um, and this is a spoiler alert for um, The Dark Tower. I think considering its place in The Dark Tower saga, the burning of Ben's manuscript, how that represents overcoming his childhood trauma in the house, and that's fairly um, nice prose on the sentence level, it is successful. Though your change in format has helped me realize he ends the first three published novels all with purifying fire. So that's a bit played out by the time we get through The Shining, I'd say. Um, and then we have Craig who writes, I liked it. Main story has been told with the good guys winning. However, the survivors are traumatized and unlikely to completely erad eradicate the villain's handiwork. Um, John, again, spoils uh, The Dark Tower. John's last name, Callahan, and he writes... It really ends in the Dark Tower, and it's awesome. My name means I'm right. Steve writes, it felt like an unfinished story. Um, and then uh, Aaron says that that, uh, that he liked it. So uh, those are all of our thoughts on, on Salem's Lot and how we feel about Salem's Lot. Okay, um, so in order for me to analyze the ending, I need to... Um to look at the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of, of Salem's Lot. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I struggled a little bit. Um, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to offer two suggestions for the concluding events of the plot and how they get mapped out. Uh, now, I have no doubt that scholars more adept at the intricacies of plot mechanics can map this more efficiently than I can. But I have always found that King's stories you know, hit these beats organically. You know, in this case, it depends on what you think the driving conflict of the story is that's necessarily going to determine what the, the climax and everything else is. Now, I should also say that for those of you who are more mechanically inclined um, to, to map out a story, I strongly recommend the, the Story Grid podcast. It is a fascinating examination um, and, and breakdown of, of stories. Um, and it goes into much more detail than your tried and true typical plot line. Um, it breaks the plot line up into different arcs and then within each arc it has um, like a, a rising action and a hook and, and it's, it's a much more intricate and involved um, and uh, formulaic approach, which, and I don't use that negatively. Um, it is, it's a, I've mentioned it before on the show, 
and I and I I don't listen to it a lot because I get a lot of guilt once I listen to it that I am not writing, uh, and but. I should listen to it more because it does force me to want to write. And then I sit down in front of a screen and then I, I punk out. But but everyone should listen to it because it is – there is a longtime editor who knows what he's talking about. And then you have more of a novice writer who in their dialogue, they're helping to shape a story together. It's, it's a really, really cool exercise. And like I said, I haven't listened to it in about three years. Uh, but it is um, – so I don't know what ever happened with it. I know that there's still episodes coming out, but it is a, a, a phenomenal examination of the, the mechanics of a, of a story. So anyway, the ending of Salem's Lot. So option one. Let's look at option one here. If, if the conflict is that uh, Ben fails in his attempts to keep Susan safe, then the climax is Ben having to stake her. All right. Um, I would not have offered this up, but if you treat the book as Ben's return to town in the wake of his wife dying, then he attempts to restart his life and keep the potential for happiness alive through Susan. So in this examination, it's not so much about the town, but what the town has given to him and how for Ben, the town itself is inextricably linked to Susan. If his actions serve his quest to keep the town, therefore Susan safe, then the climax has to be when he is forced to stake her after she has been turned. So that is one examination of this, which means that the climax is Ben stakes Susan. The falling action is Callahan versus Barlow. Ben and Mark successfully eliminate Barlow, but the town is still overrun with vampires. And then the resolution is Ben and Mark return to Salem's lot to finish the job that they have started. Right? Then we have another option here. The alternative to the climax is to treat the confrontation between Callahan and Barlow as the most exciting point where the conflict gets resolved. The conflict being the fight between the natural order of the town um, under the onslaught of the vampire threat. And this concludes when the head vampire has his showdown with the town's man of God, the link to what we otherwise call the white. Um, and in this showdown, in this climax, the, the, the natural order um, is not strong enough. The, the belief in the goodness and the white um, is not enough to combat that which has entered the town um, to overrun it. And then everything that occurs after that is because of Callahan's um, failings and self-doubt and um, his lack of belief in um, a larger a larger order that can help him um, or his town. So that that treats the climax as Callahan versus Barlow. The falling action is then Ben and Mark successfully eliminate Barlow, but the town is still overrun with vampires. And then the resolution is that Ben and Mark return to Salem's lot to finish the job they started. So the events are almost exactly the same with the exception of option one, it pushes the the, uh, the the Ben staking Susan into the ending, and option two pushes it out of the ending. Regardless, most of the same events do occur within both of um, these options. So I would really like your thoughts on on what you feel the true ending is if we're looking at from the climax onward. So write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com with the subject heading Salem's Lot Ending. So. 
I'm going to be examining this uh, and to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of having an objectively good ending um, through uh, the analysis of, of a number of questions. The first of which being, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? So please listen to my original review for my thoughts on Susan, uh, who still, uh, does, to me, never becomes a true character and functions purely as a love interest for the protagonist. The term fridging comes to mind, and fridging is a term that was coined by comic book uh, writer Gail Simone in a now famous blog post in which she examines the trope of an author murdering the love interest of the hero to provide motivation for the hero. The term plays off an egregious example um, for Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern's girlfriend, uh, Alexandria DeWitt, uh, who was brutally murdered and stuffed in their refrigerator by a villain. Um, I, I can't say with certainty, but to me, it feels like Ron Mars created this character for the purposes of killing her off to simply provide that Uncle Ben slash Thomas Martha Wayne moment for Kyle Rayner. Um, you know, I, I think that when we're dealing in, in terms of superheroics and supervillainy and uh, the realm of horror, <sighs> there are instances in which a character can be killed for use of motivation for another character. It just needs to be handled well, right? Um, but I, I, I think that if a character is created specifically to motivate another character, um, or, or the, the character is created so that the, the death will motivate a character, I think that there is a, I don't know, Laziness isn't isn't the right word. Now I now I think that it is lazy. Now that the term fridging is out there, and now that it is um, a criticism worthy of applying towards fiction and how we tell stories. To sorry guys, to do that now, um, I I believe that it is lazy. At back then, I I don't know. I mean, I know that you know since then, uh, you know there a lot of stories that were once celebrated, there has been a lot of walk back. You know, Alan Moore will not talk, well, about his, he, he, he rarely has anything good to say about the, the works and, and working within the, the big industry, but, you know, he has walked back uh, Barbara Gordon's crippling and sexual humiliation at the hands of the Joker and the killing joke because, you know, the, the, the tortures that she is, um, has to endure is uh, to, you know, drive her, her father insane just to get at, at Batman. So it's, you know, I mean, her her subjugation to the horrors, I mean, it's kind of insulting because it's not even designed to do it for the main character of the book, uh, but it's for a secondary character because the secondary character, um, what happens to him will be the, uh, the, the, the driving motivation of the main character. So um, yeah, that was celebrated back then. Um, it's not anymore, and it's it's you know I think that we should be having this conversation, and I'm kind of going around in circles right now. But I, I the reason I bring all of this up, this the, the the example of fridging, is because to me it feels as though Susan was created by King specifically for the moment in which Ben has to stake Susan through the heart. So the question is whether or not, <sighs> whether or not. This means that the, it, it is weak characterization if it is a, a weak conclusion to the character. I, I happen to say that Susan is, is barely an entity as a character. 
Um, she falls madly in love with this stranger that comes to town who is kind of a wet blanket. You know, he, he isn't much of a character. He's as much as a cipher as you'll ever really see in a Stephen King story. Um, and, you know, the, the only good news here is that um, his, his blankness really helps Mark Petrie pop a lot more who I think is a fantastic template for uh, later characters to come. But in terms of Susan, her conclusion, it is appropriate for her introduction and everything that's come prior, but it also it, it casts a, a shadow of doubt over all of Susan. And I do believe that the inclusion and the character of Susan is is a misfire in this novel, especially when she is supposed to be the heartbeat of the the passion in the story and it is it functions only in concept only not in actual execution i would say that when it comes to susan um though her staking her 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 being turned to a vampire and then her ultimate staking it fits within the dracula story that king is telling so he gets points in that regard but his inability to actually make this character come alive and therefore make her death matter to me the reader um that is a failing um the the resolution to the other characters however if if there is any weakness in the the full-on execution of the character of susan then that is balanced by the late inclusion of the father callahan character who doesn't it doesn't show up until much later in the book shows up joins the quartet and is quickly um beaten by the vampire but in that short time that he is there um he is a very nuanced character who he is a good-hearted man who has failings and those failings get the best of him and his doubts get the best of him so the the nuance there uh make up for the lack of nuance with a character that has been around since the beginning. And all the secondary characters, they, 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 they pop and sizzle as well. It's just unfortunate that none of them happen to be uh, a female character. Um, but the, the, the resolution, I'm going to be talking about uh, Father Callahan later. But his, his inclusion in this novel, his conclusion in this novel... Um, I, I think make it makes this ending work on a character level. Um, having Mark also suffer watching his parents die. It's another example of fridging, by the way. Um, collateral damage for our, our main characters. Um, it's all it's all solid stuff. All right. Um, well, I would actually, you know, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to say it's solid. There is a ah. Uh, a gossamer quality to the ending of this this novel. If any of you say, like, here's a challenge for you. What happens in the end? Besides everything that I, I, I talked about, like, what really happens in the end? You know, I mean, I gave you a summary, but do you actually remember sitting down and actually reading, you know, the last 20 or so pages of Salem's Lot? I've read this book so many times, and I have a hard time being able to actually grasp the conclusion of this novel outside of my memory of it. And I'm going to be honest, I, I, I struggle here being able to analyze it without actually rereading it, and shame on me. But um, I, I don't know if that's a pro or a con. I, I, I don't know if it is a, um, a negative knock on the book. Um, I like everything that Bryant had said about it, and I agree with that. Um, 
but I don't know. In terms of the characters, so I, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but in terms of the characters, I would say that Susan is definitely a knock, but, you know, ding, 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 everything that occurs with Father Callahan um, is pure gold. Um, so I think that that kind of balances each other out. <laughs> and then there's another character that we haven't talked about, and I know it's a cliche to say, but, you know, when we say, oh, the setting is a character, but, I mean, in this case, it's definitely true. I mean, some of the most effective scenes in this book are when King dives into the lives of the townspeople um, with, each, with each exploration within these chapters giving us a further look at the t- deterioration of the town itself. So, you know, this allowed Stephen King to really flex some muscles here and create a world that is purely fictional but recognizable and creating that small town and watching the the deterioration, why I can't say that word, um, destruction and corruption of this town from the outside forces coming in to reshape its identity. There is a tragedy there. You buy it. It's very, very effective. So you can't just treat Salem's Lot, the town, as setting when it is this living entity and King shows us how it functions as a living entity. And so when the novel concludes, and despite the fact they had killed the main vampire, the town is completely overrun and it's a lost cause, we have lost a main character. Um, and it is an appropriate resolution for the character in, in this novel. So that is a success. The, the fall of Salem's lot as a character is incredibly well rendered. And you have to give Stephen King credit for treating this setting as a character and then watching us watch it die um, and be corrupted with every turn of the page for the length of Salem's lot. Next question, does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Technically, yes. The plot of the story is that a vampire comes to a sleepy town, and from the get-go, King shows us the progression um, and the escalation of that premise from the abduction of the Glick children to the fall of the town priest and the defeat of Barlow. So, yes, um, the, the, the town gets more and more overrun. Uh, King does a good job at allowing each of the characters to open up their eyes to the threat of vampirism that is occurring within the, the, the town, um, from accepting it to planning it to enacting their plans to failing at their plans to revising their plans. Um, and we get the plot beats that you expect from the classic Dracula-inspired tale. We have our heroes banding together to confront the evil threat, with each side trying to outmaneuver the other, leading to the defeat of the master and the ruination of the town itself. You know, I'll get to more of this in a second, but the plot sequencing throughout the novel focusing on the, the growing deterioration of Salem's Lot, well, it's not that I'm going to get into it. I've already gotten into it. It's, it's incredibly well done. So from a plot perspective, yes, I would say that it resolves King resolves um, the plot itself. He introduces the plot. He introduces the premise. He wraps it up. It closes on a dour note with a little tinge of hope there at the end. Um, but even at the end, it, it's... He, Mark and, and Ben, though they come back, they, they can't undo what has already been done. It's a very, very bittersweet ending. And does it con, does the conclusion serve the theme, the symbolism, the motifs? I would say it does. Um, and this weaves in and out of the plot itself. Because the plot is the arrival of the vampires, and you would think that the defeat of the main vampire would equate to our characters saving the day. But like I just said, the damage has already been done. The religious face of the town has been disgraced. Um, Religion has been defeated. Susan, the love interest of the book, was corrupted by the vampire and ultimately staked of her man. 
Therefore, love has been defeated. In the face of a threat that he can't understand, the sheriff flees. Law itself reveals itself to be cowardly. Each of the townspeople who stay become vampires. The identity of the town is erased and replaced. From a thematic and symbolic standpoint, it's a crushing conclusion. For a novel about vampires, it's the town that gets staked through the heart. And are there other factors that we need to consider? The spiritual showdown between Father Callahan and Barlow is such a well-done scene. It is so powerful for King that he couldn't get it out of his head. Um, and like I said, it's interesting because the, the, the big climax here, it is not between Ben and Barlow. It's between a character who, who came into the text pretty close to the ending. Um, but you can tell that, that, that King, something about this character and something about this character's conclusion stuck with King. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower series, but we get Father Callahan back in a really big way in the final three books of the Dark Tower. And the, his failings and his fall from grace here, um, thankfully, he has the chance at redemption here. And again, um, in one of the most triumphant scenes I have ever experienced in any form of fiction. Um, Callahan has a fantastic moment um, that harkens back to his failings in the, the Petrie household. But this showdown of faith versus faith uh, is, is truly harrowing. It is a riveting sequence um, that, you know, ends tragically, but everything leading up to that is, it is a, you know, it's a great gunslinger western showdown um, between a priest and a master vampire and the the vampire just owning owning Callahan to the point where it's it's hard to read um, but that is a a major factor that you have to take into account when you're talking about the conclusion of this ending so let's get to it do I like it hmm I struggled with this uh, for a couple of reasons because I have issues with Susan and I kind of care less about Susan. But the, the ending of Susan isn't necessarily the worst part of Susan because she, as a character, just doesn't function well in the story. She is a blank page. Um, King will later go on to write incredibly well-nuanced, well-written, complex female characters. This is not, um, she has not joined the, that particular pantheon. But, um, just because there's this one component of the ending, do I throw the entire ending out because of it? And I don't think that we do. I don't think that that's something that happens. Um, I don't think that's something that we should do if it's just one component because everything else that we looked at was done well, right? So Susan might have been a failing, but it depends on the option that we have. Op if we go with option two and the conclusion um, of the, the novel doesn't even include Susan having been staked through the heart, then we can't even really factor in to, uh, to, to, to Susan, um, you know, whether or not she works and whether or not her death has any impact. Um, and then we talked about the, the, the town itself being a, a character, and it's a fitting end to the character of the town. Um, it successfully wraps up the plot, and it does so well. It, 
you know, things spiral out of control. The events of the plot and the vampiric threat um, are, are so enormous that the age-old murder the head vampire and it will kill the rest does not work. And then it's just an epidemic that no one can control. It is, uh, it's now a concept that is, that is beyond any salvation. That's a dour ending, but it's one that's appropriate. It's, a, it's an appropriate conclusion to the book. Does it successfully uh, um, uh, serve the the theme, the symbolisms, and motif? Yes, like I said, the the, the, the showdown with Father Callahan isn't just about um, the, the character of Father Callahan, but what he represents. He represents religion. Religion fails. Um, Susan is the love interest. Love is conquered. Um, the sheriff runs away. Um, there is no such thing as law and order anymore. And the townspeople that stay are not themselves anymore. So the identity of the town is gone. So from a thematic standpoint, the conclusion is it, it, it puts a stake. It puts a stake right through the, the, the heart of, of this town, and it does so well. So I will say this. Do I like the ending? Yeah, I like the ending. Um, personally speaking, the, the, the Father Callahan showdown with Barlow is one of Stephen King's best written passages. So yes, I really like that part. And for all of the reasons that I just explained, I think that it objectively is a good ending as well. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, I like the ending. I, I have a hard time like really being able to, to grasp you know, the, the, the main beats of the ending. I'm having a hard time describing it, but I don't dislike it. Um, so it's going to fall into the category of liking it. I like the ending. There's a lot of goodwill going into the ending that kind of puts me through. But for all the reasons that I explained, more importantly, um, more importantly, it is a good ending. It's an appropriate ending. Uh, there is, there are thrills to the ending. There is, it, it's harrowing at the end with our characters dying. I didn't even talk about Jimmy dying. Um, you know, them going to the wrong place to find Barlow, um, the, the, the cat and mouse game between Barlow and, and our, our quartet. It's all, uh, it's all written very, very well. And, and you, you see that they're hurtling towards an insurmountable conclusion to this story. So yeah, I like the ending. It's a good ending. Ladies and gentlemen, between Carrie and Salem's Lot, Stephen King is now operating at still two for two at 100%. 100% of his books, I like the ending. And 100% of his books, I think that we can agree, are good endings. So I have enjoyed my time examining the conclusion of Salem's Lot. It's crazy to me as I sat down to record this. I remember specifically driving to go kayaking in the summer of 2014 um, thinking about my review and what my review of Salem's Lot the movie was going to sound like. Um, and now here I am again, uh, five years later, uh, just over five years later, um, back in the town of Salem's Lot. So this is a wild journey for me. Okay, guys, uh, so next week I'm going to be looking at The Shining um, and the ending of The Shining. And, of course, when we talk about the ending of the book, you know, we have to mention the, the Kubrick ending. So don't get me wrong. There will be a little bit of a conversation there, but I'm not going to be litigating um, the, the qualities of King's book um, in contrast uh, to Kubrick's, though I will acknowledge Kubrick's uh, ending because I feel as though we need to. But it's not going to be a, a either or, right? You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that next week. But um, with Doctor Sleep having come out, and spoiler for Doctor Sleep, the movie, but Mike Flanagan 
um, brought in elements of the conclusion of the uh, Stephen King's novel The Shining, as well as uh, the, the the ending of Doctor Sleep, as well as uh, Stanley Kubrick's um, The Shining, as well into a, a, a strange, um, monstrous. Uh, conclusion for his 2019 film, Dr. Sleep. And so a lot of people have been talking about the ending of The Shining a lot lately and what it means. Um, And King thought that Mike Flanagan was so successful with his ending of Dr. Sleep that he actually forgave what Stanley Kubrick had done with The Shining. Um, And so for all my thoughts um, about The Shining, both the book and the movie, you can head back into uh, the the podcast timeline um, and review those episodes. which, which uh, I remember having a lot of fun doing. Um, but next week, I'll be reviewing the, the conclusion of The Shining. So if you have any thoughts on The Shining uh, that you want to share, whether or not this ending works for you, for everything that I discussed, whether it wraps up the themes, ra- whether it wraps up the plot, whether it wraps up the characters, um, just write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, and in the subject heading, write The Shining Ending. If you have any thoughts on Carrie, if you have any thoughts on Salem's Lot, do the same. Write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and in the subject heading, write Carrie ending or Salem's Lot ending. Okay, guys, so may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord I will slay him. Ha 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 ha! He'd take it from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. Ha 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 ha! Blood will run down his face when he is decapitated. Ah! His head on my mantle is how I will let this world go. How much I love you. Die. 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 I can.